0: everybody and welcome to another episode of beyond the breakers a podcast about shipwrecks loss and lessons learned from maritime disasters my name is tanner and i'll be one of your hosts today i'll be joined as usual by taylor in just a minute but first we have some new patrons to thank so we would like to give a beyond the breakers shout out to dominica and yura so thanks so much for supporting the show on patreon we hope you enjoy all of the bonus episodes uh, that are up there. So I guess now I will bring in Taylor. How's it going?
1: It is pretty good. Uh, A little early this morning. I know we're doing this a little earlier than we normally do, but um, pretty good. How about you?
0: I'm doing very well. I like our new recording schedule, gives us a little bit of flexibility in terms of time and gives us more time to edit each episode. Absolutely. The only problem is that I forget which episode to be promoting on (laughs) social media. Yesterday, I had a perfect tweet put together. But I realized I was promoting this episode we're recording today rather than the one we (laughs) released yesterday.
1: I think, too, I I forget, like when I see it get released now, I'm like, I'm as surprised as anyone else. Like, oh, yeah, I forgot. It's that episode.
0: So, yeah, what have you uh, what have you been up to this past
1: week? Oh, let's see. Well, I finally am reading a book, like actually reading a book for the first time in quite a while instead Mm -hmm. of doing an audio book. Started The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov, which was your recommendation. I'm about a hundred pages in right now, and it's pretty good. Like it it's amazing. I haven't read fiction in quite a while. And um, I don't know. I just met or just got introduced to the the Tomcat, so I am intrigued to see where that goes. Behemoth. <laughs> that was uh so yeah, that's that's been fun. I've been reading through that. Um definitely will continue. Um then later today we're actually going to the Boonshaft Museum here in Dayton. It's like a science museum for kids. We're going to take the kids over there. So be a fun day of uh, getting out and doing some stuff a little bit later. Very fun. Yeah, what about you?
0: Uh, My media check-in, I guess something a little bit different than normal. This past week, uh, on Friday, I was able to attend the virtual conference for English USA. So the nice thing about that is I attend several conferences each year, uh, just for my, for, uh, for teaching. A lot of those tend to be a pretty wide range of programs, uh, and, mm-hmm. and sessions that they're, that they're geared towards. So you end up, you know, at Wisconsin TESOL or at TESOL international, you end up seeing a lot of sessions that are maybe more geared towards like a K-12 setting or like an adult English setting. And that stuff doesn't always apply directly to intensive English, which is the type of English that our program is for university preparation. Um, you can always kind of glean and and sort of mold those things into something that you can use. I mean, I think it's always beneficial to hear from from different contexts of teaching. But the nice thing about English USA is that it was all IEP focused mm-hmm. sessions. Um, so it's it's kind of talking to some of the same types of people who have the same challenges and issues that you do. It was a, a lot of fun. It was a smaller conference, you know, obviously compared to like a, a TESOL International. But it's really nice that so many of these conferences have taken advantage of, you know, our new experiences with virtual meeting. Mm-hmm. Because so many of these conferences now, people can attend that wouldn't have had the ability to otherwise. Right. Uh, coming up, there's the TESOL International Conference. Attending that in person is like four or $500. Uh, so, we fortunately are able to use the the virtual access and with that actually we can we can spread around the experience a little bit more with our teachers doesn't just right. have to be two or three people we're sending everyone can kind of participate a little bit um, so it's really great um, i really enjoyed that conference i got a lot out of it um, a lot of really great sessions that was my media i guess
1: awesome yeah that does sound like a really cool program though that like like you said makes it more accessible. So. Everyone can kind of participate versus like one or two senior staff or something.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's really great there. I mean, there are some silver linings, I guess, in in some contexts to what we've experienced the past few years. Well, I guess that's a good segue into something that is also horrific, but maybe <laughs> has some silver linings at the very end. So I'm going to start with a curveball here. Don't okay. usually do this, but I'm going to start with a quote. Okay. This is a quote from Lloyd's Steamboat Directory, published in 1856. We are now about to relate the particulars of an event which seemed, for a time, to shroud the whole country in mourning. An event which is still believed to be almost without parallel in the annals of steamboat calamities.
1: Have you seen A Series of Unfortunate Events, the Netflix version? Uh, I have not. It, that feels like how like the narrator would begin an episode. I guess
0: I have seen that sequence with Patrick Warburton.
1: Yeah, I pictured him reading that.
0: You could almost read that as like an 1850s sort of version. It, it reads almost like a trigger warning. That's the kind of thing that people now, you know, scoff at like all oh, these these woke kids and their trigger warnings. But it's been a thing for a while. And it kind of tells you, you know, this is the 1850s, the, the heyday of steamboat explosions. Mm-hmm. If they're including this in their steamboat directory, you know, you're about to read something pretty gruesome. Right. So we'll be talking today about the riverboat Moselle. Not the most famous vessel in U.S. history, uh, but one that's going to play a pivotal role in the history of both American transportation and the evolution of the power of the federal government. Hmm. So our story is going to take place somewhere that you and I both have a deep connection to, and that is Cincinnati, Ohio.
1: Nice. Just down the road a little bit. Yeah. So Taylor,
0: you live in... Dayton, currently, not far from mm-hmm. Cincinnati. I was born in the Cincinnati area. So Cincinnati, for, for those, we're, we're going to try and do a better job with geographical notes, even for, for places that we know pretty well, because we realize that all of our listeners maybe don't. Cincinnati, Ohio is located on the Ohio River in the southwestern corner of the state of Ohio. Cincinnati today isn't really thought of as a, a big city. You know, I think if you ask Americans to list you know, what, what are some some cities, you know, Cincinnati might not be super high on the list.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's a it's a good like medium large city. Like obviously you have like sports and stuff like that. You have major league sports and all that. It's not New York or L.A. Yeah.
0: Obviously. And I would say that like people that do know it, they probably know it because of sports. You know, oh, Cincinnati Reds, Cincinnati Bengals. FC Cincinnati, if someone only watches MLS. <laughs> Poor person. So, yeah, we kind of have this modern conception. I think Cincinnati is in the 60 to 70 range in terms of largest populations in the US. But for a significant part of its history, you know, through around 1900, Cincinnati is one of the largest cities in the country.
1: Yeah. Uh, one of the things I think that when you like learn about Cincinnati history and that they always talk about is like it's like the first boom town. Mm -hmm. One of the first boom towns like in the United States that like it was the western frontier at one point and kind of Mm -hmm. the last stop in civilization before you got really out there. As
0: the U.S. is expanding westward with all of the challenges and problematic things that entails, the Ohio River kind of is that artery of not even necessarily safety, but it's the closest thing to it. Um, Mm -hmm. So these towns that spring up along the river become really important and they grow very, very fast. Um, you know, you've got Cincinnati, Louisville. Uh, also, you know, becomes a, a big deal. St. Louis, obviously, it's a city with a interesting history. And with the importance of rivers in this expansion, and particularly the advent of the steamboat in the early 1800s, Cincinnati became a major transportation hub. The star of our show today, as we said, is the Moselle, a steamboat constructed at Cincinnati's Fulton Shipyards between December 1837 and March 31st, 1838. Lloyd's Steamboat Directory refers to her as
1: the very paragon of Western steamboats. She was perfect in form and construction, elegant and superb in all her equipments, and enjoyed a reputation for speed which admitted no rivalship. Her commander and proprietor, Captain Perrin, was a young gentleman of great ambition and enterprise who prided himself above all things in that celebrity which his boat had acquired and who resolved to maintain, at all hazards, the character of Moselle as the swiftest steamboat in America.
0: Between this reputation as the swiftest steamboat in America, and the fact that we're even talking about a steamboat on this show, (laughs) we might be able to know where this story is going. The date of our main event today is April 25th, 1838. So if you think back to her construction, this is less than a month. Uh, After she was completed and started plying the rivers, Uh, she would be setting out for her fourth overall voyage uh, on this day. During the handful of weeks that she'd been in service, she had already gained a reputation as one of the fastest vessels on the river. On the first voyage she made after completion, she made it from Portsmouth to Cincinnati in seven hours and 55 minutes. Not super impressive today. Uh, You know, with with cars, uh, that's probably, I don't know, like a two hour drive. Probably. Yeah. Portsmouth. There's not a great way to describe this. I I was trying to think of a, a way to say where Portsmouth is. Portsmouth is south of Shillicothe. And <laughs> I, that doesn't help a lot of people. I feel like it's kind of in a weird uh, spot in the middle. Yeah, just
1: there. keep following the river.
0: <laughs> this was an impressive time uh, for the day. On her third trip, Moselle had arrived in Cincinnati from St. Louis, having set a record for shortest time recorded on this route, uh, getting there in 16 hours over two days of travel. And that was quicker by several hours than the previous record.
1: It is interesting that like, I guess it can't be overstated like how much faster this is than going overland at the time.
0: So given the role of both of these cities, St. Louis and Cincinnati, in travel and commerce on the river, this kind of serves as a a benchmark route for riverboats in terms of speed. It's kind mm. of a good way to measure how fast is a boat, how fast can she get from St. Louis to Cincinnati or vice versa. So on this particular day, the Moselle pushed off from the dock at Cincinnati between four and five o'clock in the afternoon. Some sources say six or sometime in the late afternoon, early evening
1: here. I guess this is also before like time zones are standardized, right? So like it. Like yeah, I guess we'll probably keep different times.
0: Yeah, the Cincinnati Whig reported it as around six. Uh, they are the local paper, so I don't know. Maybe it is a little bit later. So she's leaving Cincinnati. Ultimately, she's bound for St. Louis by way of Louisville. Just an easy place to stop along the river. Spectators, we won't call them witnesses just yet, <laughs> noted that she was crowded with an unusually large number of passengers. It's cool to see throughout history what this term entails. You know, what is an unusually large number of passengers? Right. We've talked about other, you know, other steamboat. We talked about, obviously, the Sultana. And we talked about her having, we're talking in the thousands when we talk about how much, how many people are packed onto Sultana. And here the estimate is as high as 300 With these older stories, there's a lot of variance, and it's not often clear if accounts are referring to the passengers or the total number of
1: people aboard. Do we know, like, capacity?
0: I don't know what her listed capacity was. Again, this is kind of like the days of if you can fit and the boat moves.
1: Yeah, that's true. It was more vibes at this point.
0: From the accounts I've seen, like the newspaper, the contemporary things, 300 seems to be the total number of people, including the crew. So people were apparently crowded onto the Moselle right up until the moment that she pushed away from the shore. That's something we've seen before. Um, mm-hmm. It's very hard to keep track of who's on the boat uh, when you're loading right up until the point of departure.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that like you see this happen and kind of get regulated out of existence in Europe and the United States, but then you read stories like the Bacoba, and it's still happening.
0: Yeah, the Bacoba. We saw some similar issues with the Jola, uh, Mm -hmm. where in her stop, there was kind of this unofficial boarding taking place. So there was a lot of excitement around this boat due to her novelty and her reputation for her impressive speed. Quoting here from the Cincinnati Whig, The Moselle was a new brag boat and had recently made several exceedingly quick trips to and from this place. A brag boat. Yeah, that's an adjective we don't use as much anymore. But, no, I uh, like that. It was a
1: thing. We're didn't, we need to bring that
0: back. Uh, so we can see a parallel here with the Paisley Canal disaster, where the novelty, the newness of something, the reputation that it had sort of attracts more people to it than, you know, would be there otherwise. And that contributes ultimately to what will be the death toll. Right. The weather is described as pleasant. You know, springtime in southern Ohio can be pretty nice. You're thinking about a, a nice sunny day early in baseball season.
1: Mm-hmm. April's one of those months where it could be 80, it could be 30, and it could be like thunderstorms with tornadoes or it could snow. Like, you just don't know. It could go any way it wants to.
0: Uh, so, here we have a nice day. Lloyd's Steamboat Directory describes the day as follows:
1: It happened, unfortunately. That the larger number of passengers were collected on the upper deck, to which the balmy air and delicious weather seemed to invite them in order to expose them to more certain destruction.
0: So before heading downriver, so that's to the west, ultimately to St. Louis, Moselle turned upriver to pick up additional passengers at Fulton. So this is going to be about a mile upriver. We were talking about this before we started recording. At the time, Fulton was a separate village, but it would be annexed into Cincinnati in 1858. And now I don't believe Fulton technically exists at all.
1: Uh, Yeah, I did a little research real quick. And if you find there's a place called Turkey Ridge Park, if you (laughs) find that right there on the river, that's basically where it looks like Fulton would have been.
0: So there doesn't seem to be any concern about her being overloaded. You know, she's brand new. No one's probably thinking about the strain being put on this brand new, fancy, impressive boat.
1: Yeah, she's like the 737 Max of her day.
0: Right. The Cincinnati Whig writes that...
1: During the whole time of detention, the captain was holding on to all the steam he could create, with the intention of showing off to the best advantage the great speed of the boat as she passed the whole length of the city.
0: So here talking about keeping his steam up, he you know, they're they're stopped. They're taking on passengers, but he's having the boilers keep going at Mm -hmm. full capacity as much as they can, possibly over capacity, as we'll see in about 30 seconds, which like
1: the big thing here is like he's going to pass the entire Cincinnati waterfront again. So he's wanting to show off what this thing.
0: Yeah, he wants to go just full speed and show everyone who's still waiting uh, at the dock. Like, wow, look how fast this thing can go. So there's the issue of wanting to show off the boat on her own merits, uh, get to the destination quickly. It's also reported that there's an element of competition involved in the captain's decisions.
1: It was understood, too, that the captain of this ill-fated steamer had expressed his determination to outstrip an opposition boat, which had just started. The people on shore were cheering the Mazelle in anticipation of her success in the race, And the passengers and crew on the upper deck responded to these acclamations.
0: Once the additional passengers were on board the Moselle, this is described as a family of German immigrants. Uh, So it makes sense coming from the east, presumably heading maybe to St. Louis to Mm -hmm. join that uh, German community there. Something went terribly, horribly, and explosively wrong on board the Moselle. The Cincinnati Whig describes it as follows.
1: Soon, as the family was taken on board from the raft, the boat shoved off, and at that very moment her wheels made the first evolution. Her boilers burst with a most awful and astounding noise, equal to the most violent thunder. The explosion was destructive and heart-rending in the extreme, as we are assured by a gentleman who was sitting on his horse on the shore, waiting to see the boat start. Heads, limbs... Bodies and blood were seen flying through the air in every direction, attended by the most horrible shrieks and groans from the wounded and dying.
0: So I think this is such a a riveting description here because, you know, this is supposed to be a show. Yes, this Mm -hmm. is transportation, but this is he's he's showing off for people on shore. This is that kind of thing where you can imagine, you know, parents bringing their kids to the waterfront to say, hey, we're going to go see the new steamboat.
1: Yeah, I think we've talked about that in a lot of sh- episodes where there's the entertainment options are limited at this mm-hmm. time. So, like, seeing a new steamboat, which is like the pinnacle of technology at the time, is a lot bigger of a deal than it might seem.
0: Yeah. And something that's supposed to be like a fun afternoon on the waterfront turns into like probably the most scarring experience of a lot of these people's lives.
1: Right. Like, enjoy your PTSD because you have it now.
0: And I guess a modern parallel you could say is, you know, not that long ago, we had the uh, the air show, uh, that mm-hmm. collision um, where yeah. those planes crashed. And you, you got to imagine that's a similar situation for, you know, you're a, you're a kid, you love airplanes, go into the air show uh, with your parents. And again, something that you can't unsee probably yeah. for the rest of your life.
1: Right. That's a great point.
0: Uh, so that was from the newspaper, the Cincinnati Whig. Lloyd's Steamboat Directory describes the explosion of the Moselle as unprecedented in the history of steam. Its effect was like that of a mine of gunpowder. All the boilers, four in number, burst simultaneously. The deck was blown into the air, and the human beings who crowded it were doomed to instant destruction. Fragments of the boiler and of human bodies were thrown both to the Kentucky and Ohio shores, although the distance to the former was a quarter of a mile. Uh, An eyewitness stated that every timber of the Moselle, quote, appeared to be twisted as trees sometimes are when struck by lightning.
1: Uh, I guess another important geographic note, the river does create the borders between the state of Kentucky and Ohio.
0: Yes, yes, that's a good point. So body parts being blown to Kentucky, they're talking about just across the river. Uh, Still an impressive distance here.
1: Yeah, it's it's not a small river. I have done the flying pig uh, relays like part of the marathon before it runner ever had to run across the river on a bridge and like it's not a little river
0: yeah i think at its widest the ohio is about a mile wide i think near louisville yeah and at this point it's it's about a quarter of a mile so you've got pieces of boiler pieces of the ship body parts hands heads feet all of this stuff just being blown all over the place it's an enormous explosion Not just a horrific scene, this is probably also like the loudest thing they've ever heard.
1: Mm -hmm. I would imagine, yeah. For most of
0: these people, like this enormous, you know, mechanical engine explosion, this is just like probably an inconceivable event. Uh, So after the explosion, what remained of the Moselle began to drift downriver. This was not much. Uh, Everything forward of her paddle wheels was blown entirely apart. So from her wheels to her bow, just totally gone um, in pieces on either shoreline and in the river. Passengers who survived the explosion were forced to jump into the river where many of them drowned. Uh, In about 15 minutes, she'd sunk to the bottom with just her chimney and some of her upper structure above the water.
1: I always think it's interesting in these times that like kind of forget that pretty much the general knowledge of knowing how to swim is fairly new. Mm -hmm. Like most people didn't know how to swim back in the day. It's just like a general knowledge thing. I feel like nowadays, like most people can at least float and tread water, even if you're not a strong swimmer.
0: There's like more of a general education about it. I mean, there's at least, you know, a unit in gym class, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, providing probably a little bit more basic knowledge to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, like, I'm not the strongest swimmer, but I'm very confident, like, I could swim if I need to.
0: If I was blown off of a steamboat. (laughs) Right. I could maybe make it to
1: shore. (laughs) Uh, That being said, I do not want to be in the Ohio River, at least in its current form. It's pretty gross.
0: Yeah, I would say now, if you're in the Ohio River, drowning is probably not the first thing that's going to kill you.
1: Eaten by a mutant carp.
0: (laughs) I remember on a a Reds... I think the brewers were in Cincinnati and so on the broadcast they showed a kind of a wide shot of the Cincinnati or of, of the Ohio River and there was a guy fishing on the shore and I just was wondering like what are you going to catch and what are you going to do with it <laughs> It's a magic carp <laughs> News of the disaster immediately began to spread attracting thousands of additional people to the waterfront It was immediately apparent that most of those who'd been aboard the Moselle were no longer quote within the reach of human assistance.
1: A gentleman who was among those who hastened to the wreck declares that he witnessed a scene so sad and distressing that no language can depict it with fidelity. On shore lay twenty or thirty mangled and still bleeding corpses, while many persons were engaged in dragging others of the dead or wounded from the wreck or the water.
0: The newspaper descriptions are understandably pretty graphic, so given the shock of the disaster and expressions that to us sound less than tactful, some of the most detailed description has to do with Captain Perrin. Lloyds describes the captain's fate as follows, saying, Captain Perrin, at the time of the accident, was standing on the deck above the boiler in conversation with another person. He was thrown to a considerable height on the steep embankment of the river and killed, while his companion was merely prostrated on the deck and escaped without injury. Hmm. Additional description
1: comes from the Cincinnati Whig. The captain was thrown by the explosion entirely into the street, and was picked up dead and dreadfully mangled. Another man was thrown entirely through the roof of one of the neighboring houses, and limbs and fragments of bodies Scattered about the river and shore in heartrending profusion.
0: Uh, so the boat's pilot, a J. Fleming, was reportedly one of the bodies thrown all the way to the Kentucky side of the river. Um, so again, about a quarter of a mile. He did not survive that. Um, so total casualty estimates vary. Somewhere between 150 to 200 people were probably killed. So a significant portion of those who are on board.
1: And I imagine like too like with this like the total destruction combined with like the we don't really know how many people were on board to begin with like there's potentially people that are just gone.
0: Right. Um in terms of you know what you're going to find being able to sort of re- reassemble who was on this from from the bodies you find doesn't necessarily tell the whole story.
1: I also think it's interesting, like what you kind of mentioned is like how graphic some of the descriptions are. Obviously, there's a debate to be had about, you know, how we write news stories today and how things are reported on. But you have to think that like you get a much more accurate picture of what's going on, a much more Mm -hmm. vivid picture of what's going on rather than a lot of the really neutral language and kind of lifeless language that gets used today in reporting news.
0: And I think it's also interesting, you know, if you're writing, if you're writing for the Cincinnati Whig here, for example, you're writing this article, you probably don't have the same experience that, say, a journalist today has for writing about horrific things you've seen. And so that sort of those sort of tactful protocols probably haven't been developed or even really thought about uh, at the time of like, okay, well, how do I write about this professionally? So, yeah, obviously, it's a different time. Different priorities. And here, the priority is we want to describe this as faithfully as possible.
1: Yeah. And I honestly, I feel like there's something to be said for that to not kind of like make it so neutral that there's no emotion left in it.
0: There are some sources, not contemporary sources, but some of the later ones will refer to as many as 300 people being killed. I think that's just a confusion with how many people were on board. Hmm. Because you can see how. We talked about this with the neuronic, but you can see how these things happen where you see a headline that says Steamboat Moselle explodes with 300 on board. It's very easy to see how that would get telephoned into 300 people killed in Moselle explosion.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense.
0: The Moselle, really the the reason that she is sort of a pivotal moment in American history is, is not so much because of the disaster itself, but because of what it leads to. Mm hmm. Then hours of the disaster, fingers begin to be pointed. You know who is to blame for this? The Cincinnati Whig on April 25th, so the day of the accident, this is like a special night issue, an extra issue. They asserted that the accident unquestionably occurred through sheer imprudence and carelessness. The captain of the boat was desirous of her great speed as she passed the city, and to overtake and pass another boat, which had left for Louisville a short time before him. Dearly has he paid for his silly ambition. Yes he has.
1: I, you could say so. Um, Those are the kind of lines that I feel like are lacking in modern journalism <laughs> right there. Like, I need more of that.
0: Well yeah, and like I think it's also like it was like yeah, you could say that, but like he did did he have to take like two hundred people with him? Right, right, yeah. So the day after the loss of the Moselle, the mayor of Cincinnati convened a meeting to discuss the disaster. At this meeting, citizens criticized the, quote, great and increasing carelessness in the navigation of steam vessels and strategized on how to urge Congress to take action regarding steamboat safety.
1: No one denied that the sad event, which caused so much consternation, suffering, and sorrow – was the result of reckless and criminal inattention to their duty on the part of those who had the management of the Moselle. Nor was there any attempt to palliate their conduct.
0: Uh, So at this meeting, a professor of chemistry from the Medical College of Ohio named John Locke, (laughs) uh, not just a political philosopher, I guess, conducted the primary analysis of the incident, he came to the conclusion that the safety valve on the boiler had been weighted down to prevent emergency release of steam from the boilers.
1: Oh, this is like a classic chain and lock the exits to a theater strategy almost.
0: Yeah. And we've talked about tampering with the safety valves before we haven't really gone into detail. Essentially what we're talking about here is you've got a boiler, the water in the boiler creates steam, that steam runs the engine And there's there's kind of like a sweet spot in terms of the amount of steam you want to be generating, because if you generate too much, the boiler can't use it. It can't get it to the engine. And that's how you have a boiler explode. And so these safety valves are designed to open and release that excess steam if there's too much of it.
1: Right. And like as much as we like to laugh at some of the safety regulations and lack of in 1838. People didn't want boilers to explode, so they designed them to not explode in general.
0: If you're a steamboat captain and you don't want to waste all that steam, you say, no, 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 I want to get this into the engine so I can go fast, fast, fast. One of the things you could do, we've talked about tying these valves down or or weighing these things down so that they didn't open, they didn't release, and then all of that steam stays in the boiler. So mm-hmm. much of the time when we have these steamboat explosions, it's due to a direct action on the part of the engineer or the captain. I don't know exactly why the chemistry professor was the authority on this, but I'm assuming he was just one of the only scientists available
1: because he'd gone to one of those fancy learning colleges.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not totally sure about that, but yeah, he he could have been the closest thing they had to you know an expert. The Moselle disaster was national news, and it led to something of a reassessment of priorities in american society maybe just superficially at first but it does lead to some actual concrete changes from the new york herald on may 5th 1838 so looking at what about two weeks after this happened the explosion of the moselle has added another to the frightful list of disasters on the western waters The following observations may perhaps assist in the almost hopeless task of finding a remedy for an evil, which certainly in any other country would be considered intolerable.
1: Are we talking about assault weapons?
0: You'll see a lot of parallels here. I've made a couple notes uh, later on, but the way that people talk about this and saying, you know, in the United States, in a country like the United States, we're a forward-thinking modern nation. No other nation would allow these things to happen. Why are we letting our own citizens be killed by things that we totally have control over? You see a lot of parallels.
1: Also interesting to hear Cincinnati referred to as the Western waters.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a shift in uh, in perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that frightful list that the New York Herald, Herald referred to, one entry in that's uh, likely in the writer's mind was the steamboat New England, which blew up off of Essex, Connecticut in 1833. But despite the shock of that incident, only eight passengers and five crew were killed. So terrible, but paling in comparison to what has happened with mm-hmm. the Moselle. Uh, he continues It will be found, I fear, that in this instance, as perhaps in many others, however blamable may have been the conduct of the captain and officers, there are others who should come in for a share of the censure. Later in this debate that'll be happening in congress between you know the public and business people and the government one of the the opponents of regulation contend that this is an individual issue if a steamboat explodes it's the captain's fault he ran the steamboat in an unsafe manner uh, it's his fault and his fault alone um, or maybe the engineer. It's not my fault as the owner. It's no one else's fault, but this individual. So how how are you going to regulate individual actions?
1: I'm almost surprised Norfolk Southern hasn't blamed the single engineer yet <laughs> for the train crash in West right. Palestine.
0: As you can see, it, it's not just the ship's crew or owners who caught criticism here. The Herald also called out the culture of speed and recklessness that had overtaken passengers as well. Quote, The whole distance from Louisville to Cincinnati was a continued race between her and the Ben Franklin. This is the other boat that they were racing with. Mm -hmm. The exploit was mentioned and applauded in Cincinnati papers. The passengers almost unanimously gave the captain a card, which was likewise published, wherein his skill and prudence were warmly commended, and his boat was recommended to the patronage of the public. In fact, throughout the trip, hardly a warning voice was heard from any of the passengers on the contrary many of them were most zealous in urging the firemen to additional exertions and in stimulating the almost frantic energy of the captain while such is the state of public feeling and such so often the conduct of passengers how much soever we may be shocked at the frequent occurrence of these frightful accidents we have no reason to be surprised the dangers incident to the navigation of the western waters under the most careful management are surely sufficiently numerous without adding to them the needless risk incurred by the foolish desire of shortening a journey a few hours
1: interesting that we're taking the like blame the passengers approach who are not experts nor do they understand how this works
0: i think I think what they're getting at kind of is is the fact that it's an issue that we I think we face today also in different industries but the passengers want to get where they want to go fast 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 Mm -hmm. fast get us there fast that's all we want as fast as you can go which obviously is going to spur captains and engineers to run their ship at unsafe speeds because the more passengers they get where they want to go the more passengers they can get back on and get back to another destination and the more money they make
1: yeah i feel like there's like a balance there because like obviously i want to be as fast as possible when i get on an airplane but I also assume that there is someone in charge that can be like, no, this airplane can't fly. Right. But then you do see people have complete meltdowns at the airport when it's like a safety or mechanical issue. And it's like, do you really want to get on the plane that bad? This plane that may not be able to fly properly. And the answer is yes, for some people.
0: Yeah. And like we said at the beginning, when when she sets this record from St. Louis to Cincinnati, you know, she does it. She saves a couple of hours.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, point being made here is, you know, is your. Your business trip or your vacation, like, is starting that two hours early worth the possibility of you know getting blown a quarter mile across the river, right? With your, with your friends and family's body parts falling next to you, right? And then you have to die in Kentucky, and no one wants to do that. I'm sure people would say the same about Ohio, though.
1: Yeah, probably.
0: Probably best to just die in the middle of the river. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's technically Kentucky, by the way. <laughs> I think like the Ohio border only goes, like f- I don't know, 40 feet into the river. It's weird.
0: Hmm. That doesn't seem very fair. No, it doesn't. Writers and journalists didn't only look externally for who to blame for disasters like the Moselle. And this is kind of refreshing, I think, to see. I Maybe there has been, but I can't think of an instance of this recently. E.W. Gould, who put out a compendium of river travel in the U.S., wrote that
1: we in part take blame we plead guilty in common with other presses of having praised the speed and the power of the boat circumstances that doubtless contributed to inflate the ambitions of its captain and owners
0: i think that's a that's a rare thing to see for a publisher for a, mm-hmm. a, a newsperson to say like You know, this is we kind of have to look at ourselves, too, because we're the ones who keep on publishing things about how fast these boats are and how amazing it is and how you, uh, the reader, have to try this boat out. You have to get on this boat. You can you can be to St. Louis in 15 hours and say, well, yeah, like we kind of contribute to that culture, um, that sort of worship of speed here.
1: I would just like one like tech magazine or our news website to be like, yeah, we helped inflate crypto. It was pump and dump. Sorry.
0: I have a a bit of a strange comparison to make here for people who watch football and even people who don't watch uh, American football, the discussion of CTE and Mm -hmm. just the the, the horrendous traumatic brain injury sustained by players who, you know, even if they play their whole career physically on the outside healthy, they they never tear their ACL. They never break a leg. They never uh, have to deal with a, a torn rotator cuff, whatever there's still this traumatic brain injury that comes along with that. Do you remember years ago in the football pregame shows where they had the segment called jacked up?
1: Absolutely.
0: And it's something that to me seems very strange to think that 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 was really not that long ago. Mm -hmm. Um, That was probably what, 10 years ago, maybe even less.
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, it was definitely like, I remember in college. So like, 2010 it existed for sure
0: premise of this segment being they you know showed the highlights from the previous week of all of the crazy huge devastating hits you know maybe a safety just decapitating a wide receiver coming across the middle
1: that man's name was john lynch and he's now an executive (laughs) in the for a team in the nfl
0: things that have since been you know legislated out of the game as much as possible but up to pretty recently, those were the kind of things that would get you praise and highlights on on the pregame show. So obviously mm-hmm. there's some incentive you know if you're a safety, if you're a corner if you're a linebacker to be making these huge devastating hits because that's what gets that's what gets eyes on you. that's what you know makes you a premier defender and now that's not the case. you know now we we think a lot about how to hit um, and, and you know what is illegal or what's not a legal hit. And I was thinking about that, about how this is a similar situation. You have the the sports media praising these things. And then all of a sudden there's you don't hear much about that anymore. I don't know if they ever issued any sort of like apology or like, hey, this was a bad idea. They may have. Um, and and I, I just didn't see it. But yeah, it, it, it's the kind of thing where there is a level of responsibility that the press has in mm-hmm. promoting these things.
1: Yeah, I think you I I do kind of remember at the time there being like some opinion pieces maybe calling it out for that. But to the best of my knowledge, I don't remember like CBS or Fox or ESPN issuing like a company wide thing of saying, hey, this is something we participated in and it's not right.
0: Yeah, and, and that's not even not, not even to say that those hits wouldn't have happened without that. But yeah, it's the glorification of it that mm-hmm. is the the part that's distasteful, I think, in in hindsight. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was, you know, a kid, I was in high school, whatever. So it's like, yeah, those are the segments I like you want to see the big hits. And then, you know, you, you grow up, you learn a little bit more, you realize that this is a, this is, this is pretty horrible.
1: Yeah. It is interesting like to continue that a little bit. Um, Like now you see a hit like that and it's concern that you Mm -hmm. have versus like kind of a celebration in the past. For
0: sure. They were showing highlights of like Ryan Clark the other day and even even he was saying like you can't hit people like this anymore and and that's for the better like that's a good thing that that's been taken out of the game
1: Mm -hmm.
0: so anyway um back to 1838
1: (laughs) um before we knew about ct
0: i want to turn to an article by christian Gelser. it's called speed is a virtue travel in the mid-19th century united states Americans in the 19th century increasingly took advances in technology as evidence of national virtues, even while its dictates disconcerted some. But what constituted progress? Extension of the Republican experiment was certainly one definition. To that end, geographic expansion was both necessary and good. Speed would enhance the condition of the citizenry through the growth of commerce and travel. Furthermore, Speed and transportation hastened the spread of civilization, a cause in and of itself by century's end. Speed, then, embodied a moral imperative.
1: Americans blithely rode machines like the Mazel throughout the 19th century, ready to accept a startling amount of mayhem in return for a quick voyage. Steamboating continued to thrive during the century, despite the frequency of such events. And observers then, as now, concluded by way of an explanation that Americans were in a remarkable hurry.
0: So that article contrasts the American obsession with speed at the expense of safety with opinions from European observers. Uh, one of these is Lady Emmeline Wortley, who asked, Whence arises this indifference to human life in so flourishing and prosperous a community?
1: It's an evergreen quote.
0: We you talked about gun legislation earlier, and how th- these are the same things you hear now. Of in the United States, you know, we consider ourselves to be the premier nation on the planet. You know, we're the the richest, the most powerful. Why can't we stop ourselves from murdering each other? Like, right. and then you hear, well, it's it's not a gun problem; it's a mental illness problem. And say, so, okay, well, there's mental illness in every country. But there's not routine weekly gun massacres in every country. So there's some other factor in play here.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's, it is it's interesting to see that like it looks like that same line of thinking is extending here.
0: Yeah, and so some people have that same thought process of, you know, surely we we can find a way to stop this. Surely we don't have to be doing this because it's not happening in other developed countries. Other countries have steamboats. This isn't happening as much as it seems to in America. And this leads us to the era of federal regulations. Scary. So the Moselle wasn't the first steamboat to explode and rend its occupants apart in the most horrendous ways imaginable. Nor was it the deadliest incident. But the Moselle still occupies an interesting place in the history of American transportation. The destruction of the Moselle can be seen kind of as a tipping point in forcing congressional regulation of steamboat transportation. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> but legitimately in this case. In his article, Bursting Boilers and the Federal Power, John G. Burke writes about the state of transportation safety in the early 1800s. From 1818 to 1824 in the United States, the casualty figures in boiler disasters rose, about 47 lives being lost in 15 explosions. That's a period of about six years and that is uh, two and a half boiler explosions per year.
1: That's a lot for something that's literally a catastrophic failure. I mean, consider like two and a half airplane crashes per year.
0: Yeah, I was going to make that comparison of, you know, kind of our modern equivalent in terms of uh, fast and efficient travel, the airplane. If an average of two and a half American airplanes crashed every year, people would wonder much more, well, is it going to be the one that I'm on? Some places such as New York had tried to resolve the problem by taking a step backwards technologically, requiring boats to use copper boilers instead of wrought iron. Interesting. This seems to me like a bit of correlation causation mix up because uh, so the thought process here, copper boilers typically were less likely to explode. Mm -hmm. But that's because they were used in the older low pressure boilers. Oh, these things weren't exploding, not because they were copper, but because they had lower pressure. This led to a general public understanding that wrought iron boilers were inherently
1: unsafe, but only because you could use them improperly, like easier, essentially.
0: So, yeah, there's this uh, this general public understanding that wrought iron boilers are inherently unsafe. Uh, One steamboat captain wrote. We have concluded, therefore, to give them a copper boiler, the strongest of its class. And have made up our minds that they have a perfect right to be scalded by copper boilers if they insist upon it. <laughs> <laughs> Saying if if you want to if you want this to explode, I don't care if it's copper or wrought iron.
1: Yeah, I guess at that point it really doesn't matter, does it?
0: Well, and in fact, <laughs> it's funny be- because the reason that wrought iron was introduced is because it can handle those higher pressures. So right. by requiring people to use these copper, you're, you're essentially making it more likely that you're going to have an explosion. If right. people but, are trying to run the same power through them.
1: I and mean, like the only reason that the copper is safer is because people would use them properly. It, it, if they're not going to use it properly, it's probably less safe.
0: So in 1824, as a consequence of the steamboat Etna explosion, Um, So this was one of the contributing factors to those New York regulations. A resolution was introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives that would have barred the issuing of navigation certificates to any vessel operating with a high-pressure steam engine. So they're basically saying, hey, this is too unsafe. You can't use these types of engines at all. Mm -hmm. From 1824, there were 42 boiler explosions, which killed an estimated 273 people.
1: So what, in a matter of six years?
0: So this is the same span of time we just talked about, so where we had 15 explosions from 1818 to 1824. Uh Uh-huh. In this subsequent six-year period, we've got 42 explosions.
1: Line, Line go up.
0: Something is not working the way it's supposed to. Right. In 1830, it was the riverboat Helen McGregor, which acted as the example case for Congress. McGregor had blown her boilers near Memphis, killing 50 to 60 people.
1: Mm, That's like a preview of what's going to happen in like 35 years.
0: Yes, yes. So this prompted the House to request Treasury Secretary Samuel Ingham to conduct an investigation into boiler accidents and submit a report to Congress. Uh, So in addition to being a well-known and trusted individual by Congress, um, you know, Treasury Secretary, he had served in Congress twice. So they they knew him. He was also a successful paper mill owner, so he was familiar with steam engines and some Mm -hmm. of the problems that came with them. So when collecting his data, Ingham reported an unwillingness on the part of steamboat captains to aid his investigation. Quote, they were told repeatedly that the problem was purely individual, a matter beyond the government's right to interfere. Hmm. You know, the government can't tell me what to do with my boiler. Um, and my <laughs> and my two hundred passengers. Right, they're my passengers. I can do whatever I want with them.
1: If I want to blow them up, I will.
0: They paid to come on my boats, and they're now mine. So the the subsequent Treasury Secretary Lewis McLean, he picked up the investigation, and he ended up submitting the report to Congress, which found that
1: steamboat trips from New Orleans to Louisville have been shortened from 25 days to 12 days since 1818 without increasing the strength of the boilers. A frequent remark was that engineers in charge of the boilers were ignorant, careless, and usually drunk.
0: So saying we're we're increasing the demand on these boats and what people expect from them without increasing their actual capabilities. Right. Uh, Another bill was proposed in the House in May of 1832, and this bill included provisions that boilers must be tested every three months at three times their working pressure. The issuance of a navigation license was contingent upon this inspection, and foreseeing complaints from owners, uh, the government offered to
1: bear the cost of these inspections. Nothing like getting stuff done with a good old federal government subsidy.
0: Um, So another provision would have required engineers to supply water to the boilers while the boat was not in motion under threat of heavy penalties. So life's tough if you're an engineer. You've got to actually put water in your boiler
1: and maybe not be drunk.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I say would have because this bill also died in the House. In his December 1833 State of the Union address, President Andrew Jackson included a segment about the distressingly frequent occurrence of steamboat accidents, urging Congress to act. Soon after this, Senator Daniel Webster proposed a similar testing regulation from the previous bill, coupled with a stipulation that any steamboat found to be racing would be forfeited to the government. <laughs> um, so trying to crack down on these things are OK. So the the owners are saying this is an individual issue. You can't you can't regulate that will at least try to regulate some of the issues that come up. And that tends to be these boats are racing each other and causing a lot of harm.
1: Uh, I would love to see like that debate go down of like a captain. Like I'm not racing. And like the government being like, yes, you are This, How do you prove that?
0: They're like pulling out his letters that he like wrote to his wife saying <laughs> had great race against the Ben Franklin smoked those turkeys.
1: Like fast and furious 25. Mm
0: hmm. Cairo Drift. (laughs) So, this bill also would not be passed, mainly due to questions about sovereignty and the federal government's right to meddle in states' territorial waters.
1: Interesting. Good thing, like, Texas doesn't have a big river, that we'd still be (laughs) arguing about it. So, in 1838, so the
0: year the Moselle disaster occurred. 496 people were killed as a result of 14 boiler explosions on steamboats. So these numbers are still going up from that initial data that we looked at. England had similar problems to the U.S. in terms of frequency, although low pressure engines were still in use in Britain, and British steamboats averaged about half the tonnage of U.S.
1: ones. No, we did it bigger and better.
0: So they're having some of the same issues, but it's just not as devastating because of the nature of the boats.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: the size of the boats led to requiring more boiler power in the U.S., coupled with this American cult of speed. Uh, this led to the comparative bloodbath in the U.S. compared to other countries who are using steamboats. When the Moselle exploded in Cincinnati – so again, just one in this horrific series of steamboat accidents – It prompted Congress to further discussion, even causing an attempt to suspend normal practices to allow a bill to be rushed to the floor. That wouldn't be approved, but the bill itself survived to be brought to the floor on June 16th. Again, the main debate centered around the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution, saying, Can the federal government tell these business owners and tell states what to do in terms of this regulation? The bill passed and became law on July 7th. 1838. So, quoting from Burke, the law incorporated several sections relating to the prevention of collisions, the control of fires, the inspection of hulls, and the carrying of lifeboats. It provided for immediate appointment by each federal judge of a competent boiler inspector having no financial interest in their manufacture. The inspector was to examine every steamboat boiler in his area semi annually, ascertain its age and soundness, and certify it with a recommended working pressure. For this service, the owner paid the inspector $5, his sole remuneration, and a license to navigate was contingent upon the receipt of this certificate. The law specified no inspection criteria. It enjoined the owners to employ a sufficient number of competent and experienced engineers, holding the owners responsible for loss of life or property damage in the event of a boiler explosion for their failure to do so.
1: Interesting, like, I feel like it's so typical, like, we're gonna have all these laws, but like, it's still really up to you to just do the right thing.
0: One of the critiques of this bill will come up later is a lot of the provisions are pretty unenforceable. Mm -hmm. And due to the fact that this is not very centralized, you know, you have individual judges appointing inspectors that they know or they trust in their area.
1: Or like their like nephew that needs a job.
0: Right. There's also no standards for engine capacity. They're saying to each boiler's capacity. There's no standard PSI or anything that they're saying, you know, a boiler has to meet this requirement. Also, interesting that the owner pays the inspector directly.
1: Right. That is interesting. So like, hey, you only make $5. Would you like to make another five?
0: Yeah. What's to stop me from paying this inspector $15? He reports his five and keeps his 10 and says, my boiler looks perfect. Mm -hmm. There's some holes in this, but again, it's it's an attempt, uh, a first attempt by Congress to legislate and regulate these things. The law stated that any steamboat employee whose Mm -hmm. negligence led to a loss of life was to be charged with manslaughter, Mm -hmm. punishable upon conviction by up to 10 years in prison. There was also some protection for owners in that the law stipulated a boiler explosion in and of itself wasn't to be considered proof of negligence until proven otherwise by a defendant. So there were complaints about the law from the general public and steamboat owners. The public questioned the omission of specific inspection criteria and how the expertise of the engineer was to be officially assessed. That makes that part meaningless, basically
1: especially to not have any connection to like the manufacturer of steam engines. I feel like most people that would be experts at this time would be making them because that's probably where the money is.
0: Uh, One critic said.
1: We are mostly ruled by corporations and joint stock companies. If half the citizens of this country should get blown up and it should be likely to affect injuriously and trade and commerce of the other half by bringing to justice, the guilty, No elective officer would risk his popularity by executing the law.
0: We keep making connections between 1838 and modern day. You know, lamenting a country ruled by corporations and joint stock companies. That's something that sounds so modern.
1: It is funny that, like, you hear that from even, like, like, Occupy Wall Street or something Mm -hmm. from, like, the earlier 2000s. And what are we in, 1840, 1820? Like you're hearing the same things.
0: The U.S. isn't a country. The U.S. is like four corporations in a trench coat.
1: It is interesting hearing those same critiques.
0: From almost 200 years ago, people are already seeing this as a problem of, you know, all these businesses control everything. How can we have safety if the businesses are, you know, have their hands in everything? Owners and operators of boilers weren't happy either. They pointed to continued explosions through 1840 as evidence the new law was ineffective. Quote, they argued that if Congress considered steam navigation too hazardous for public safety, it would be more just and honorable to prohibit it entirely.
1: That that feels familiar, too, of like, well, if we can't just do whatever we want, then like, why should we even do it?
0: Yeah, just make the whole thing illegal, huh? If you tell me my car isn't supposed to run down children in a crosswalk, then why don't we just ban cars? (laughs) So there was a case in 1845 involving a boiler explosion at a flour mill in Pennsylvania. So should mention here elements of the law applied to boilers in any commercial capacity, not just on steamboats. So if you have one in your factory, it's also regulated by these things. In this 1845 case, an exploding boiler at the mill killed the plaintiff's horse. Uh, No loss of human life here. Uh, The owner, uh, who's the defendant here, argued that any negligence regarding the boiler was on the part of the manufacturer. So we've we've got owners blaming individual captains. We've got owners blaming manufacturers, blaming everyone but the owners. Uh, The court ruled against the defendant, saying that the owner of a public trade or business which required the use of a steam engine was responsible for any injury resulting from its deficiency. Which I think reads like a modern law might read, saying if you're operating this on your property, on your business and it hurts someone, it's your responsibility.
1: Yeah, right. Like, as the owner, you are liable for this thing.
0: Later lawsuits involving boiler explosions would look to this case as a legal precedent. So, ultimately, the 1838 law that came about as a result of the Moselle disaster wasn't effective in preventing steamboat accidents. Despite the continued series of explosions and deaths, however, only 18 prosecutions for manslaughter were made under the law's provisions in the 10 years following its passage. So essentially, juries were just uncomfortable convicting owners of manslaughter for what they could perceive as honest ignorance. Right. I think nowadays we might discuss these things under the label of negligent homicide or something like that, where, you know, operating a machine, operating a vehicle unsafely, even if there's no uh, willfulness on your part to kill or injure anyone, you are still responsible for what happened. Right. You know, we also have heightened expectations for what a business owner should know about the machines that they operate. Now, I I think the excuse of I didn't know that would happen, I don't think that excuse would fly now.
1: Yeah, I feel like there's a lot more law written as to like if someone knows or should have known. It's the same thing, essentially. So in
0: 1852, another law was passed. And by this time, the free enterprise argument had lost a lot of its public support. The idea that the government can't tell me what to do with my steamboat. The new law established a board of inspectors empowered to investigate accidents with the right to summon witnesses and to examine them under oath. So these features were not included in the first law. The first law appointed those inspectors, but they were independent. They had essentially no legal power. If they wanted you to to give them information, they had to just ask you nicely for an interview. They had no legal authority to summon you to court. So that gives a little bit more teeth to this government regulation. Maximum allowable pressure was set to 110 PSI, regardless of the boiler's individual capability, and testing had to occur yearly. Interesting. It's interesting that that was done. It would be almost like if we regulated car safety by saying the speed you can go in this car is some percentage of its maximum speed, rather than posting actual speed limits for everyone. Right. Uh, So two safety valves were required, one of which was to be behind a locked grating to prevent it from being tampered with. A proponent of the bill stated, I consider that the only question involved in the bill is this, whether we shall permit a legalized, unquestioned, and peculiar class in the community to go on committing murder at will, or whether we shall make such enactment as will compel them to pay some attention to the value of life. Between 1852 and the beginning of the Civil War, steamboat accidents dropped by 65%. Hmm. So we finally see a concrete improvement here in yeah. the safety regulations. Took some work, kind of took some experimentation with what worked and what didn't. But there is actually some progress. We actually kind of have a happy-ish ending to the story. We have less boiler explosions on steamboats.
1: And it is interesting, too, that like with the Sultana, it's completely like a different set of circumstances that are talked about as to why that happened.
0: Yeah. And like, that's less of a business setting. Obviously the owners are making money, but there is a very different, like, there's a reason that they're trying to pack all these people onto the boat. You know, we can see the legal debate spurred on by the steamboat accidents, you know, of which the, the Moselle was the most horrific for the time. It's, it's really a landmark in the history of the federal government and mm-hmm. also in Americans changing perspectives on what they would allow the government to do in the name of safety the story happened 185 years ago and you know despite the progress we've made we're presented with new dilemmas in the modern age when we talk about tesla's self-driving cars the idea that these things are essentially being beta tested out on public streets uh with mm-hmm. pedestrians and other drivers and you know the the ethics the legality of that um, wh- why are we all guinea pigs to this um, and and lots of other probably more widespread issues too, but yeah, the issue of what what do we allow private enterprise to get away with outside of government regulation?
1: Yeah, it is very interesting that it's 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 always been a thing. You know, it's always been that push between technology and business versus the public safety and public good.
0: Yeah, so I thought this is a really interesting uh, story to present. It's one that caught my attention really early on in making the show,, um, but I never really sat down to pursue it. I'm glad we did,
1: yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting too that like this isn't something I don't feel like that's talked about a lot in Cincinnati. Like I don't think this is like a common knowledge topic, you know like so many other events are in cities uh, you know histories and stuff. So it is interesting to dig into it a little bit and just kind of learn something new about something that's so close,
0: yeah, so with that, we'll wrap things up this week. Uh, And we will just talk to you all next week. Until then, take care, everyone.